0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Help keep nonprofit food radio on the air and get a limited release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chema Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait because this limited edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donation. You can even get your company on the HRN Airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.
2: April, good to see you. Welcome to another episode of Culinary Call Sheet. Always a pleasure.
3: Always a pleasure, Darren. So happy to be here. And we have an incredible guest, Antonio Diaz from Life and Time, who is going to tell us all about his journey with establishing a culinary media brand.
2: Antonio Diaz is a prominent figure in the LA dining scene and media scene and has really expanded with his partner, Hector, out into the international realm of media and journalism and reporting. He has such a great eye for aesthetic, but more than that, he's got a really great entrepreneurial spirit. I think today it's easy to look at a lot of any sort of brand, but especially with Instagram and TikTok or or even online websites and just be completely intimidated. And what I appreciate about the conversation that we're about to have with Antonio is that he really breaks down how he built it brick by brick. And the wins and the losses throughout the years.
3: One of the great things about Antonio is that he comes at culinary media from a journalistic point of view. And mm-hmm. I think that that's really important because this sort of touches on more of the documentary, more of the film, this bigger sort of story that uses food as a medium versus solely being about food TV. Mm. And He also touches on how his brand started through print and digital media and how that's still a part of his brand, how that expanded into a production company. And it's actually really great for anybody looking to get into TV this episode. It it talks about a lot that is required in order to both become a brand, to become a production company. And he gives Mm -hmm. us step by step how he learned how to make a TV show.
2: And it also really is a great lesson on how to work with others, especially if you are Building something so personal as your own company and your name gets put on something or you get known for something, what that means to actually grow and when other brands get involved and networks get involved and the compromises you have to make, but also what you want to fight for, it's a big part of really growing. And he is very generous in sharing the spotlight and saying that he is not an army of one. He has a lot of collaborators, a lot of producers, directors, writers, cinematographers. And that's really important. I know that when I went to school, they really pushed this narrative of you being the solo producer, director, editor, and that way you could take credit for everything. And for a few years, I took credit for a lot of mediocre stuff. (laughs) But when I really started to find success and work that I was really proud of is when I started to work with more people and really build a team and really listen to feedback and take feedback. How do we adapt? How do we grow our business? Because that's the other side of this is that at the end of the day, beautiful plate of carrots is great but if no one's watching or no one's buying it, then you're missing out on a big part of what this industry is.
3: Not to mention a beautiful plate of carrots is great, but if you don't have a storyline or a backbone to your content or something that connects you to the community at large, then what are we doing here? And I think that what we all know, those of us who work in media, is that this is a field that is dictated by relationships. And I know you have a Mm -hmm. relationship with Antonio, so I'm super excited to talk to him. Do you wanna kick it off?
2: Antonio Diaz, let's add your name to the Culinary Call Sheet. Antonio, always a pleasure. So good to see you, sit down with you, chat with you. Welcome to the Culinary Call Sheet.
4: No, Darren, the pleasure is always mine.
2: Tell us about yourself. How, you know, as a man of many talents, would you describe what you do?
4: I think at the end of the day, I'm a storyteller, or at least like aspire to be one. And I'm just such a curious, like, individual that I just use my curiosity to fuel anything related to art, creativity, uh, storytelling, and filmmaking. But at the end of the day, like, what I've done is created this production company that focuses on food culture around the globe. And it's called Life in Time, T-H-Y-M-E, like the herb. And... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I run it and it's been 10 years and it's been my alter ego, my identity. It's been my lover, my my wife, my everything. And it's got <laughs> almost every ounce of my humanity to it. But uh, it is a publication and a production company at the end of the day.
3: Was Life and Time always due to be a publication or did you always know that you wanted it to become a production company?
4: The production company came after. And honestly, the way it started was just... A blog, an online blog, and I think we started on Tumblr. To be honest, it was before, <laughs> before we the real to early out. days of the internet. That was the armpit of the internet back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so life and time was just this outlet for myself and some creative friends to document what we were eating because we were just so curious about this, um, you know, bubbling food culture that was exploding. In, especially in L.A., and San Francisco, and became a place for articles and journalism and editorial. We were just wanting to tell these stories, and writers across the globe were starting to uh, reach out to us and ask if they could contribute, and that's how it slowly became a publication. And then the production company came much later, once we started dabbling into um, videos
2: when you started life in time a decade ago what did the culinary media landscape look like did you see a perspective and a community missing jonathan gold was still like the gold standard but other than
4: that there wasn't like a lot of like long form Mm. food journalism i started getting like just obsessed with learning about where food was coming from um because at the time like my diet was like Fast food and Lucky Charms, and like just eating cereal sure, at odd hours. Sure. And then I read Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. And that book was an eye opening experience for me because I, f- I just like it was like learning where food was coming from. And I didn't have a background in food, my background is in agency, like web agencies and graphic design, and um, you know, working with clients because my company was an agency in the past. So I like I didn't know much about food at all, and the more I dug around, like the the less I found. Like I wanted to know who mm. was who was making this food, who was growing the ingredients, who was cooking it, who were the people behind the dishes. Because all I was seeing was reviews and like nitpicking what's on a plate and listicles. So I wanted something of substance. I wanted to know like the humanity behind this industry. So, you know, we're like, fuck it. Like, let's just do it ourselves. We're storytellers. We're creatives. I'm, you know, I'm running around with uh, uh, a crew of photographers, filmmakers, and writers anyways. And selfishly, it was a way for us to just learn and to learn ourselves. So, you know, we were kind of like in the early stages of that sort of next chapter of what food media
2: became. It's one thing to see the whole as you did with the missing stories and the reporting in the culinary or journalistic media field. And there's another thing to start a brand. Did you have an idea of the stories you wanted to tell and the tone, how you wanted to shoot the food photography? How early was the the mechanics and the aesthetic put into place as you started to bring life and time to life. So the aesthetic was there
4: from day one. Like it had to be. And because we come from a creative background. When I say we, it's myself and on the early team that I had in the beginning. We're photographers, you know, storytellers, not necessarily in food, but we have the skill set to make something look appealing, you know? And I have a graphic design background, so the site had to look incredible. It had to look immersive, big photography, cinematic quality. And because I was also coming from the agency world, I knew that we had to have, like, impact. It had to look a certain aesthetic for to get people's attention. And, you know, what we were documenting, the type of stories that we are going for, that evolved along uh Along the journey, because in the beginning, we didn't have a clear focus of what we were documenting. All we knew, which is still kind of the case today, is we wanted to tell human stories. Right. That's it. Right. Yeah. I live in L.A. I'm a person of color as well, with a, with a Mexican heritage. You know, you kind of have a different perspective on the right. food industry because it's just yeah. what's around you and the environment that you're in. Yeah. So, in a lot of you know, my community are minorities and people of color and like lots of latinos and that's when we started to like focus more on like who are the real people behind Mm. yeah who are like the real prep cooks and cooks that are in the in the in the kitchen who are the the stories behind the the people out in the field picking the the produce and 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 feeding us that started to become like our trajectory in the beginning. Did
3: you know those stories yourself already? And it was something that you were trying to shine some light on, or did you realize that you yourself weren't getting the sort of stories that touched on like Latino culture or these other cultures and things that you were seeing all around you?
4: I knew a fair amount and I knew fragments of it. And now everyone is like much more aware, but even just like being you know, a Latinx or Latino or whatever label you want to call. Um, Growing up in LA, you're kind of like aware of the working class people. But at the time, you didn't really put too much attention like as far as how media is portraying it or the lack of portrayal of that. So we were kind of like, even just like growing up uh, uh, Mexican-American, you're already kind of used to being you know kind of like off to the side and not really portrayed and Mm -hmm. you just kind of grow up with that you know like even going to going to elementary school I was embarrassed to take like Mexican food right right and my uh, you know my mom was like the most incredible uh, home cook like she was cooking the best Mexican food and I didn't really appreciate it until later um But I wanted, I didn't want to be seen with that food. I wanted to be seen with like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or like what we thought was normal.
3: Right. Well, and if that's what's being reflected to you in a media landscape, continuously it reaffirms that that's what's important.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't until later you you like kind of snap out of it. Mm -hmm. And we're still, we're still in the process of like snapping out of it, to be honest. like. Yeah. Right. It's still happening. So like we're we still have so much more to go, like as a society, especially here in this country. But we're like at least we're we're somewhat in therapy, you know.
3: <laughs> yeah, our country is in need of a lot of therapy right now. It needs a big hug, a timeout, a lot of therapy.
2: <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm just so curious about humanity and I'm curious about the world and cultures and how people tick. And I approach that curiosity with some level of empathy because I, without that, you're not going to get what you want, right? And
2: yeah.
4: I entered this, this space of this journalism and storytelling because I wanted to know about people's stories. But in order to know people's stories and have people to trust and open up with you, you need to approach these people with empathy, right? And that's across the board, whether you're trying to um, get access or, or tell someone's story or you have a friendship or a relationship or whatever it is, like at the root of it, you have to have some type of empathy in order to have it successful. Right. Um, so with all those components in mind, I decided to use like creativity as a way to showcase like my love and interest and curiosity of people and, you know, this world. Right. But I'm using food as like a vehicle to tap into that. Yeah. Food is the one thing that we all have in common and it's the good access point for people to learn about much bigger problems around the world. So it's a way to kind of hold people's hands yeah. to bigger issues. So if mm-hmm. we want to talk about immigration, immigrants, um, oppression, racism, uh, appropriation. Sustainability, climate change, all these big, massive social issues, one way or another, they're going to have a link back to the food industry. Every single issue that plagues humanity will have some type of link back to the food industry. And I'm just so fucking curious about everything.
3: <laughs> especially when it comes like to I really,
4: food. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially when it comes to food. <laughs>
2: You know, you have the Tumblr page and you have a group of friends who are sort of riffing on this idea, but it's one thing to have something that's amongst friends. It's quite another thing to start to build a brand. How did you take that first step?
4: It started with one particular video. Um, We were doing articles and beautiful photo essays. I was surrounded by these, these incredible filmmakers also. I'm like, there hasn't, you know, I haven't really seen like beautiful short films about the industry, about the food industry. And this was way before there was ever like chef's table or anything like that, right? Of course. Of course. I started going to this coffee shop in the Arts District, Handsome Coffee. Do you remember that place, Darren?
2: Of course. Yeah. Legendary coffee shop.
4: I remember approaching uh, one of the founders, Tyler, Tyler Wells, and he he didn't know me. I didn't know him, but I just really loved this coffee shop because it was just like this, these renegade arts district rebels at the time. And the arts district was like nothing at the time. It was just bare, just a bunch of artist warehouses. Um, and they were just all congregating at this coffee shop. And I'm like, there's something so cool about this place. And I wanted like just document it and do like a little short film, like a two, three minute short film. You tell the story about the, the coffee and tell the story about the founders and the, and the community. And I asked uh, Tyler, I was like, Hey, can I, can we come in and like shoot this place? And he's like, I think he said like, how much is this going to cost us? And I'm like, nothing. Don't worry about it. Like we just <laughs> want to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. And we did. And it's, it's still on life and time. It's one of my favorite videos. And we, when we released it, it was like our first sort of like, um, big sort of release of a video. It just exploded wow. and it got a shit ton of views among the industry, especially the coffee industry, and you just start getting shared and shared, shared, shared. And I was like, holy shit, like there's, there's some interest here. That's cool. Mm. But then that led to certain brands and companies reaching out to us. They're like, hey, can we hire you to to shoot something similar for us? And that's when like the light bulb went off. I'm like, oh my God, like this is how we make money. This is how <laughs> – <Right. laughs> Let's do a production company – And we get hired. Meanwhile, we get to also do this editorial and it becomes like our business card. Like it could be like our
1: Mm -hmm. our
4: way into the industry and like it becomes like our our little business card. Um, It became
2: a very expensive business card. (laughs) Because your stuff is gorgeous and you obviously care a lot. Um, Most people make one or two examples of their work and say, this is what we can do but you were funding the art through the business, which, you know, allows you to grow, but maybe not put money in the bank. Right, right. At least not for a
4: long time. Not for a long time, and it's, the model is is still somewhat the same today. Editorial has like its own revenue stream through like a membership program, but it it only covers a fraction of the cost to make these stories and to cover my team. But I still have the production company, and now it's much bigger than just shooting, you know, short little films for uh, coffee shops. Um, but it still funnels like a huge portion of our revenue from our production company still funnels back to the editorial um, in order to make a sustaining because we didn't take any investors for the past ten years. And it was it was completely a uh, cash flow business for the past ten years.
3: So, what's the model that you use, Antonia, that's been helping you for all these years?
4: Basically, we're a work for hire for brands to hire us to shoot um video content, and then that opened up to create um, branded content for brands, get into publishing for brands like we came out with a few different books for other companies that represented like our sort of editorial aesthetic and feel. So we became like this go to spot for a certain type of aesthetic
1: mm-hmm.
4: and it was like this high-end cinematic beautiful photos uh storytelling mixed in with like editorial right and we were like a basically we're like a boutique uh production company mainly working with brands and um in the food industry but then uh, one of their i, I don't even know it was just, she was like an associate producer or like an assistant producer um was a fan of life in time showed life in time to their uh, chief creative officer. And they invited me for a meeting and I came by. And at the time they didn't really have any food content on, on, um, on the local station here in Los Angeles. And they asked, they were like, Hey, do you want to develop a show with us? And I was like, oh my God, like here's a network coming <laughs> to us right. to develop right. a show.
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it, they sent us a cold email. That doesn't happen. That does not happen. It's, it doesn't it, happen. It doesn't happen. People no. don't, networks do not come knocking on your door and be like, we like your short form video. <laughs> would you want to make a long form episode for us? TV show. on broadcast. Series.
4: series on yeah.
2: broadcast that will run nationally.
4: Yeah. And it's not even streaming. It's like, we're going to put this on broadcast. Like you have to like turn on the television, you know?
3: <laughs> How many years into life and time were you once this deal happened?
4: That was, uh, 2000, I started, to, uh, started Life in Time in 2012 and then KCT knocked on our door at 2015.
3: Wow. And at that point, how many films had you made? Was it still just the one or how much content had you been creating at this point?
4: Like wow. 10, like three minute, four minute films. And then we had, uh, we were publishing content every week from people around the world, just like different writers and contributors and photographers. But as soon as uh, I mean, I give a lot of credit to PBS SoCal giving us like a chance, um, because that changed everything for us. Like once we started working in TV, right. that opened up the, the doors to so many other opportunities. Access. I'm super grateful. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, "Yeah, we have no food content. Like, do you want to develop a show with us?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." And we started brainstorming some ideas, and they're like, "Do you know how to do you know how to make a show?" I'm like, yeah, of course. Mm. Of course. And I got left. Yeah, with, sure. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> of yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I leave the meeting and I frantically call like my editor and we're, and I'm like, we're making a show. I don't know how the fuck to do this. Like, what are we, <laughs> what do we get ourselves into? And none of us had any TV experience. None of us had created anything more than like four or five minutes. So we develop a process, um, and somehow we were able to make a, a first season of the Myron Kitchen.
3: Hey, well, tell us about this process because a lot of people, it, this is, I'm sure something Darren experiences and I experienced it all the time. People find out that we work in culinary television and they're like, great, grab a camera, follow me. And I'm like, uh, that's not how yeah. it works, my friend. So
4: <laughs> not at since all. since you
3: had to learn this, you had a hard learning curve trial by fire. Like, congrats. It's a miracle that a network yeah. approached you. But tell us what that was actually like to make a TV series.
4: So we knew like the aesthetic that we wanted. We knew that we knew how to get that aesthetic, which is like the cinematic high end. So we, we know how to, how to shoot, but the structuring a show and the story development and how you piece it all together, all that was very new to us. So what we did was I sat down with my editor at the time, Steph Ferrari, um, and she was our uh, senior editor at Life in Time.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And I sat down with her and we're like, well, we have to develop a process. What if, what if we just treat this like editorial? What if mm. we just treat this like, it's, uh, you know, we're making a magazine, but we're making a show. So we put a lot of effort in the writing process, the research process, the, the writing process, and like the pre-interviewing process we came up with like our own sort of like formula of how to structure this, this show. And a lot of it was pre-interviews, transcribing those interviews, and then um, building like a hypothetical script off of those pre-interviews in a treatment. A lot of paper editing, mm-hmm. like a ton mm-hmm. So before we even shot anything, like we had to have like a full on, it, it looked like a script. So yep. It was all based off pre-interviews. Yeah. But since we also had a lot of producers, um, we needed to show something on paper and get everybody on the same page. Mm-hmm. Based on that, we came up with like a, you know the shooting schedule and like how we shot and everything like that. But then the afterwards, we go back to the paper editing. So once we shoot everything and we interviewed everybody, now we have real interview content. Right. Transcribe the shit out of all of it. Yes. And then we sit down and we create another script. There's the paper edit. That process, we were so anal about it with our directors. <laughs> As you should be. As you should be. I mean, we had such a like journalistic process. Sure. That a lot of these artists, these directors that are more like artists, yeah, they love to just kind of well, you know, we'll just let the camera roll and like we'll just see you know, sip through the, the food, edit. And, like,
3: nope. And Lion food baby. And being
4: like this and, and being the timeline and just kind of like Let's see if this works in this no dude this is journalism everything needs to get transcribed and we have to piece everything together with like a theme and like write it all out write it all out and it and I don't want the editor to touch this thing until they have like a full-on paper edit and yeah. editors thanked us I mean that was the one thing that like our editors loved us because we would oh, just feel a like, guide this straight up like paper at And they didn't have to be like, well, let's kind of figure this out. There's a, there's a, there is a little bit of that, of course, of, of course. course, but you know, at least you have like a blueprint and a foundation, but that writing process, we still do it today. And it is a brutal, grueling process. <laughs> Unnecessary. So necessary.
3: How does food fit into that? Cause you were talking a little bit about the research, the pre-interview, all that stuff. But because culinary media is its own beast, like we know we have to not just break down the scripts, like you're talking about pre-interview, but we have to actually treat the food like a talent too. We have to understand how it's made, where it comes yeah. from, why it's relevant. Can you talk to that a little bit?
4: The food is is its own character. And the food um, defines where we come from in our environment and our culture. Yeah. So when we're shooting like someone cooking, like, how can we dramatize it? Yeah. We're in documentary, yes, but the stories that we're telling, is almost like a heightened sense of reality. The mm-hmm. stories are true, and what we're hearing is reality and human. So we play with the camera, we play with the, the, the movement, the light, the moodiness, the color yeah. grading of it. The music, my God, like we work with with Myron Kitchen. We work with incredible, incredible composer. The journalism needs to be at the forefront because that's what documentary is. But how we consume it needs to feel emotional. And how you make Mm. content emotional is the aesthetic and the music. Yeah. Those are the two elements that make content emotional outside of like, hearing someone's story, but even hearing someone's story, how you edit it and how you play with the the delivery is also important. But music for me, my God, (laughs) it's
3: like film. But you also said when we had our pre-interview, which I loved, you said, yes, there's journalism. Yes, there's ethics. Yes, there's creativity. But at the end of the day, I'm an entrepreneur. And Mm -hmm. I think that this is something that's really important because a lot of indie brands do get lost in that aesthetic sauce. And we're trying to explain how complicated and how complex it is to make a brand. So yeah. bring us on into that, Mr. Entrepreneur. I know you've had to pivot. <laughs> I know you have like blood, sweat, and tears.
4: The first thing you need to do is learn the art of interviewing. Mm. Learn the art of being a conversationalist. Yeah. Number one, without that, you can't really do, you can't be in documentary. We can't be in editorial. You can't be in journalism, knowing you can't build a business, you can't build a brand, know how to talk to people. You adapt how you would talk to each type of person. If you're interviewing for a story, if you're gonna be talking to someone that you know has like a very uh, difficult story to tell, you have to approach it in a different way. If you're gonna be talking to a network, a producer, a potential client, um, you're hiring, you know, a director or a composer, you constantly need to change the way you approach that conversation and know when to change the conversation. So at the end of the day, like just just learn how to have a conversation with anybody and just keep it going, keep it going. And once you understand the elements of what makes a successful conversation, then you can just apply that to you know, building a business or getting a story or pitching. So number one is like, just be a good conversationalist. And two, decide what you want to be in building this brand. Do you want to be the founder? Do you want to be the producer? Do you want to be the editor? And if you just want to be one of those things, we'll find a partner, find someone else that could fill the other, the other, um, components and at the end of the day like i'm a founder and that's that's my mentality that i'm an entrepreneur um but if you don't have that natural sort of spirit because not everybody has it yeah um and that's totally fine Mm. if you don't have that find someone that does because it's going to be a lot more difficult to build a business without that component um so if you want to build a business you gotta have the entrepreneurial grit if you have it it's like a drug. Like there's Mm -hmm. no other way. Yeah. There's no other way to live in this life.
3: Well, and the enthusiasm to see it through, which is really important to the actual grit and dedication and diligence to make it happen. That's like,
4: yeah. Or, or, um, be slightly delusional (laughs) that you think you could do it right. Like you got to be a little crazy.
3: Number one, delusions of grandeur.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So be delusional. Yeah, be de- delusional. <laughs> be delusional. I'm like the C plus student that hires the A plus students. <laughs> and that to me, I'm like, that's who I want to be. That's that's my sweet spot. Like, let me try to build the platform to get much more talented people that are specialized in the thing that they love and they do very well. Let them do that thing, you know? Absolutely. Let them be an incredible writer, an incredible cinematographer, an incredible composer. The pressure is on me and uh, the rest of my team that is more on like the business development side to bring the opportunities, to bring the sort of business opportunities to hire these people, these incredible people. And I can't do everything alone, but I also I still just love building teams. I love building teams, starting projects. Um, And the journey that it takes like that, that grueling experience, but that's just like, like, I love it. I love the, the, the building of it. And I'm just, you know, always starting projects and it's also become like my notorious law as well. Like I take on too much and then like we have too much things going on at the same time. I still love building a business. And if you could build a business that has a good ethos and you're working with incredible people, That's been my goal from from day one.
2: And part of growing your brand, you have had to expand not just who you work with, but who you work for, whether that's a brand or a network. And as you expand and as you get involved with more people, they're going to have their own opinions, which sometimes might come in conflict with what your aesthetic is or how you want to tell your story. How have you been able to balance that while both remaining true to your brand but also growing your business and keeping your clients happy.
4: We haven't had too many of those issues because they're coming at us for a specific mm. feel, flavor, and sure. and aesthetic and uh, energy. So they're already, they know what they're hiring. They're hiring that, right? So it's difficult for us to like do something so radically different um and there's like a surprise along the way you know the good thing is that we haven't had too many of those issues but we do butt heads with different creative people that are working on our projects and we do butt heads with producers and the network and there's always things that we all have like different opinions on and you have to like just adapt or find a, a compromise and for the most part we've been able to win most of those um disagreements
2: <laughs> When you have found yourself in a situation where you are like, I know we are right. How do you gently nudge the people you're working with to your side of that opinion? Yes. It all comes down to the delivery, (laughs) but
4: also hearing them out and not putting too much like pressure on the problem and like making it seem like it's actually not a big deal. Like guys, it's really not a big deal. And most problems are not a big deal. Most things that happen in, in like on our day to day lives is just really not a big deal. So I think it's a more of an attitude to kind of diffuse the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And creatives and you know people in this industry, as you know, like there's a lot of pressure. It's a yeah. lot of pressure, especially in television. The timelines are tight. I
2: mean, everything is. Is crazy. It's always chaos. Yep. And the money is less now. It's less money, money. less time and higher expectations. Yeah. Yeah. And people are expected
4: to put on like 10 different hats
2: and work
4: all hours. And it's just a lot of pressure and anything that goes wrong. Like it's one little thing. It starts this massive fire. Right. And like, as I aspire to be a team leader, And being someone that kind of – I need to take these projects to the finish line. At the end of the day, the buck stops with me. Like Mm -hmm. every project, like my reputation, everything relies on me to get it to the finish line. But I also need to, you know, help my team get to that finish line in a way that is the smoothest ride possible. And it hasn't been perfect. And along the way, I've learned – how to communicate and cooperate with my team, how to cooperate and communicate with producers, with the clients, with networks, and people that hold are that above like our hierarchy, but also the people that uh, I manage. It all comes down to how you communicate with people. Always. And yeah. Always. Yeah. And sometimes it's not a big deal. Not a big deal. And yeah. how do you provide that support and that empathy to try to make them feel hey we're all in this together like this is what needs to happen or or tell me what do I need to do to make this better Um, well that's
3: a great question because you said you adapt a lot so what are some of the landmark ways that you've had to adapt as a brand over the last decade
4: we had to adapt just like with how quickly media consumption changes Mm -hmm. and so from a business side I feel like every Every week, we're like, okay, so people are now consuming this other thing, and now they're consuming it this way. We're also kind of like, we don't jump on trends immediately. Like, life and time hasn't fully evolved too much. Like, we've adapted, but we've also remained smart and true to who we are and our ethos and our mission and our aesthetic, because we kind of want to like see it out, but also like retain. Our sort of reputation in the industry, which is like, you have food media, and then you have outliers, Life and Time, these like crazy rebel kids, like doing their beautiful thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And like I kind of like being off on the sidelines. Like I mm-hmm. like being mm-hmm. outliers. And like you know this 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 reputation of like oh that's Life and Time that's that looks so Life and Time or like that's that's their thing, um, but we 've also just had to adapt with like how we work with people and how um, we try to value our team or bring on new directors or people that we work with that are not part of this industry and like how do we work with them to kind of like bring them on board but also value what they're bringing but not completely disrupting what we have what you've but built. also like bringing in a little bit of that flair of like what they bring to the table you, you just see like how food media, or food uh, shows are changing too. Um, they change and they're going to be one thing. And then like, we're back to food competitions. Yeah. And that's like the thing that everybody wants now, you know? Um, so we kind of have to play that game. Like, well, we want to innovate and do cool things, but then you have to also be in the middle to find something that's also safe for the client or for the network. Um, Cause if it was up to us, we would be always on the fringes of, of the, of artistry. But We would make no money. So we kind of have to meet in the middle of like, Hmm. well, way, find a way to make, like, make it work. You know, like Myra Kitchen, we wanted that to be like very heavy handed. Sure. Of course. uh, Serious stories. And like, you know, I wanted tears and like
3: (laughs) (laughs) pure entertainment.
4: It was just like, it's like heavy shit, you know, like the human
1: stuff,
4: feelings and emotions. And um, the network had to tell us, like, hey, hey, come on, guys. Like, really back in, we still have to tell the story about food. Like, this is still a food show. Yeah. And they would always, like, the question my uh, executive producer, Juan Davis, would always shout tell out. Me, was, Legend in the game. Yeah.
3: He's a wonderful One guy. One of my favorite. Wonderful.
4: Yeah. Um, he would always say, like, hey, what's the story behind the dish? Always, yeah. like, it was always a question. Like, all right. The guy's cooking this dish. What's the story behind the dish? And it's always like, okay, yeah, the, the food also has a story, and it can be beautiful and storytelling-driven. But yeah. we sometimes get so caught up with like human emotion and like the human story that this is still a food show. So we 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 can't lose focus of like who's consuming it and how do we make it marketable as well.
3: Yeah, it's very important. I mean, the good thing about food is that it is universal. The other great thing is that it is so subjective and
2: mm-hmm. you can take
3: that path, that bridge, food, and like walk it pretty much anywhere. But you have to keep it yeah. in sight. And as you said earlier, use it a little bit to cushion the the bigger cultural references we hope to make as we push that content
2: out. Totally. Yeah. So as you have now existed for a decade and you've established yourself as one of the unique and leading voices in the food world and the community, especially in LA, but beyond. What does that community look like? Like, what does Life & Time as a brand look like? Has has it grown into the expectations you had, had for it, or is it in somewhere you didn't even expect it to go? I feel like it's already taken on like a life of its own. It's, mm.
4: I thought this was just going to be a thing in LA. And our, our community spans across the globe like LA is definitely the largest of our people but it's become so much bigger than just like LA and the people that consume it and it's not necessarily just like the food industry either it's people outside of the industry that are now consuming it and that to me is what makes it so special because and we've talked about this before like food media sometimes feels like it's for food media mm-hmm. and, and I've and I don't and it's so hard for me to consume it um and I really don't anymore like I don't I don't read what's what these other outlets are, are writing because it feels too like insider baseball or like it's too like it's just we're talking to the cool kids that know about all the hip restaurants it can feel very sure
3: gatekeepy enough.
2: very gatekeepy. yeah that's why we started this show, to get rid of that gate. Get rid of, break down that gate, yeah. yeah. Break it down.
4: Yeah. With Life and Time, we're tapping into creatives that have nothing to do with food. We're tapping into academia. We have a lot of students that have memberships on Life and Time because we give free memberships to uh, anybody who's a student. You just email us and we give you a free membership because we value um, the next generation of writers and thinkers and journalists. We have, I'm constantly doing guest lectures at USC Annenberg at the journalism school because I wanna know what these future journalists are thinking and how they're gonna be our future writers. So we're constantly looking how do we build a a network that
2: cross-pollinates different vocations. Speaking of community, we want to welcome you to our community of a little takeaway, which (laughs) is our quick fire challenge. A little fun, a little follow-up. You're going to do great. Short answers, quick questions, a little bite, a little amuse. Here you go. You ready? All right, let's do it. How would you define success? Consistency.
3: Who is one of your biggest inspirations?
4: Anthony Bourdain.
3: What is your holy grail of meals?
4: The taco. That's it.
3: What would your last meal be?
4: My last meal would be chilaquiles with refried beans, a cracked egg on top with salsa made out of tomatillo and chili de arbol, some diced onions on top, a little <laughs> sprinkle of cilantro, and a heavy dose of cotija cheese.
3: Yes, specificity. Okay.
4: <laughs> I, I think about
2: my uh my demise often. So Yeah. It sounds delicious. <laughs> um, I
3: want to be at that party strangely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Make make a couple of plates for us when your time comes. <laughs> What's your favorite cookbook? What's
4: it called?
2: The flavor bible. You know what that that is? It's not even Ooh, a cookbook. Yeah.
4: Um, it's just like a like an index of this ingredient goes well with these ingredients. And to me, that's like the best way to cook. So I yes. don't follow recipes and cookbooks, but when I'm cooking, I like I have these things. So what do they pair with? So I would say the – I think it's called the Flavor Bible. Right, Darren? Yeah. I have great. it. It's, it's the great. Flavor
3: Bible. It's a great book. The
4: Flavor Bible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: What is something that people would be surprised to know about you?
2: That I'm a terrible writer? <laughs> <laughs> What's one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? Don't trust anybody who orders your steak well done. Um <laughs> –
4: what's some good advice you would like to share? Number one, I'm gonna have an attitude of like, I'm gonna dance my ass off while the apocalypse gets here. Like, that's the <laughs> attitude I'm gonna to bring to this world. You know, like, hey, it sucks, but can we do it in a lively manner where, can we at least have a good time doing what we're doing? Can we at least smile, and like not take everything so seriously? You know, like the work that I do, I'm trying to make a dent in this universe by like saying, hey, this is my contribution to society. Like, At least I want to tell these important stories. And it's hard. It's so hard. And it's heavy. Like, It's emotional labor on our part. We don't talk about the emotional labor from the storyteller. We don't mm. talk about the effect that this work does on the director, on the filmmakers, on the people behind the scenes, the people like you guys that we see all the behind the scenes and the stress and the drama. We don't talk about the the emotional labor that we take on to tell these yeah. stories. And especially if these are like heavy-hitting, oppressive stories that we're trying to tell. Like, it's all in my head. I have dreams about so many interviews, so many hardships that I've heard. So I take all of that and I'm like, what am I going to do with it? I'm going to try to live life as its fullest because why wouldn't you? Like, you work so hard and you tried... To do so much, you don't have to have a bad attitude.
3: What are some of the biggest successes you've seen with Life and Time?
4: I think the biggest success that we had was uh, winning an Emmy. Mm. Winning an Emmy. Um, that was such a form of validation that I had never felt before.
2: Antonio, we cannot thank you enough. Congratulations to everything you've built and for providing us with so many great stories. I was a longtime reader before I got to know you. And mm-hmm. so it's been, it's been great to experience your work and, and meet the guy behind it and just see the brand that you've built and to hear your unique story to it. And Thank you for sharing your journey. And so hopefully helps people on their own journey.
4: Thank you for, um, you know, chatting with me and hearing my
2: story. And where can people get their own copies or follow along with your journey, check out your work?
4: if uh, if you're willing and wanting you know support us at lifeintime.com become a member uh you can either become like a monthly member or an annual member and you know we'll ship out a quarterly newspaper to you you get full access to our journalism access to our community all of our events um you get in touch with you know all the crazy things that we're up to and it's i mean it's cheap and if you're a student just email us and we could also just give you a free membership But yeah, lifeintime.com is where you can see everything that we're up to.
3: Thank you so much. I mean, it's been so lovely to hear about your like hope and desire and fire ultimately to build this beautiful platform to like create the space in the world that needed to be filled. I love your passion, I love your curiosity, and it's so great to not only see that out there in the world at large, but to have this tiny little snow globe of conversation together and get like these special pockets of yourself in addition to that. And thank you so much for sharing that process with all of us.
4: Oh my God. Thank you. such a pleasure.
1: Help keep nonprofit food radio on the air and get a limited release HRN t-shirt designed by artist Chama Scandal. When you become an HRN member or renew your existing membership at the $90 level, you'll receive a shirt created exclusively for members as our thank you gift. Don't wait because this limited edition t-shirt is only available until December 31st. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to support HRN at any level. There's more swag and benefits available for any tax-deductible donation. You can even get your company on the HRN Airwaves as a perk of our business membership program. Head to heritageradionetwork.org donate.
2: What a great conversation. I love hearing what Antonio has to say and his perspective and his 10-year journey. Yeah. It's just really impressive how he's just stayed with it. I still can't get over that a network called him. To ask if he <laughs> want to pitch a show, if any network wants to call us and say, "Do we have shows that we'd like to put on the air? We're, there We're for open. You. We're there for you."
3: I really love that Antonio juggles artistry mm. with story, and how Fu is just sort of the crux for those two things. He is so unwavering in this idea of aesthetic pleasantness. That happened long before we were really approaching that uh, in culinary media as like the baseline, which we all know is like there's this premium content that everyone wants now. No matter what the budget Mm -hmm, is, they mm -hmm. want it to look a certain way. And he's always had that in mind, but also knew it does not matter if you do not have a story there. And the way he breaks down how to take your ideas and pre-interview and build scripts and transcribe Mm -hmm, and then rebuild mm -hmm. scripts and then re-look at it. This is a point that is echoed throughout the season is knowing your work inside and out and knowing how to pivot it and present it to people so that this large audience, this large community can access it.
2: Not sacrificing on the writing, not sacrificing on the aesthetic, but then understanding how to put the team together and how to produce something Mm. that makes it look a lot bigger than the actual people behind it. Yeah. It's really incredible. It's no secret in the industry that you can be on really big sets with tons of people, pre-production, production, production, post-production. And the product that comes out is just, okay, you know, it's missing something. That doesn't mean it doesn't look good or it feels slick. Right. But when you really put the effort in with a clear point of view, when you've built your own brand – and people start coming to you for that, you just get to keep refining that process. And the work just gets better. Yeah. And that's what we've seen here with life and time is that they have a process that they stick to. And so in some ways, what they work on, whatever the subject is, whoever it's with, is going to benefit from their parameters of how they produce the best work.
3: Often these crews aren't big. Mm-mm. Many times you and I have worn many, many, many hats on a set. Mm -hmm. I think you and I have stood in as culinary producers. You and I have stood in as stylists. You and I have stood in as PAs, as art departments, as you name it, we go in there. And I think that that leader knowing what the vision is and being able to communicate that is so important that as a brand, knowing what that POV is, is so important to distill it because that's what allowed him to have all these people come to him. It's allowed him to put out and continue to put out this quality work that is unique to life and time.
2: To have brands come back, to have networks come back, to have people come back is really, really incredible to see. As unscripted and alternative programming, especially when it comes to food, continues to move forward, there is going to be less resources to work with. Mm -hmm. And understanding how to put together production that is going to maximize your resources is really important.
3: What I love also about what Antonio does and what we're attempting to do here is that Antonio offers free subscriptions to students. Mm -hmm. We're hoping to offer some perspective and Mm -hmm. open the doorways to the people we interview so that as things continue to move, as we all, us included, continue to adapt in this culinary media world, that there's new life, new communities, and that we continue to make wonderful, brilliant programming that lures people in.
2: He really understands that working with the new generation, the next generation of producers and showrunners, culinary producers, writers, talent, is how we grow and make new programming. Yeah. And I think looking at new ways of doing stuff and how to build new brands is really important.
3: Absolutely. Huge shout out to Heritage Radio Network for partnering with us as always. Huge shout out to you, Darren, my co-pilot, who makes this all go round. And huge shout out. (laughs) Oh! And huge shout out to Antonio Diaz and Life and
2: Time. I was going to say, you made the world go round, but we both can. You know, if Antonio taught us anything, it's teams can make the world go round. So thank you, April. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. We are so excited. And congratulations, season one. What a blast. Thank you to all of our guests. We really appreciate it. For everyone who stopped by and added their name to the culinary call sheet.
1: This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.